safety and travels. In the meantime, we have a special guest today, uh, Dr. Richard Vargas, and uh, who is the IFCA president, and uh, we certainly look forward to having him up here. Thank you for coming out, taking your time off, bringing your family. You made the, is this the whole role here is all yours? Most of them. Most of them. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, good. Good to have each and every one of you here. So, uh, doctor, if you would come on up, share with us what God has laid on your heart today and uh, appreciate you being here. Thank you. Make welcome Dr. Richard Vargas, please. Thank you. <clears throat> Well, it's a privilege for me to be here with you this morning, and um, I'm just happy that I get a chance to meet many of you. Let me tell you a little bit about the IFCA. I was glad to see it on the front of your bulletin. I don't know if that's a regular occurrence. I would probably guess not, but IFCA is a fellowship of individual pastors, uh, leaders in churches, organizations, as well as um, uh, missions agencies and things like that. And so as I look through some of your missionaries, they're part of organizations like what used to be called New Tribes is now called Ethnos 360. They're a mission organization that belongs to the IFCA. And so um, IFCA is international. It's all across the world, but it, there's churches all over the place, including this church here and your pastor that are members of IFCA. We fellowship together around very strong biblical doctrine and a commitment to the Word of God and seeing that God is glorified in the ministry of what He's doing. And so you may find yourself uh, down in Florida or you may find yourself somewhere else in the United States and you're looking for a good church. A good place to find that is going to IFCA's website, ifca.org, and looking it up and seeing if you can find an IFCA church that's nearby you so that you know that they believe the same things that this church believes as well. I want to ask you to take your Bibles and open them up to the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. If you would open it up there with me this morning. This uh, first weekend of December, um, many of us are getting our decorations out for Christmas, putting up our trees, even here at the church. You have beautiful Christmas trees there in the lobby and some other things here. I notice a nativity here and here in the back, a nativity as well. You know, it's interesting that the world joins us in the celebration, even if they don't join us in our worship of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the one who came to wash away our sins. They may not accept him, but they'll still celebrate Christmas with us. If you think about that, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that the Jesus of Christmas that's often presented by the world is a safe Jesus. You'll notice even here in this nativity in front and this scene in the back that Jesus is a baby. Jesus is held by Mary. Jesus is safe. We like our God to be something we can control like a baby. And so I think in many ways, baby Jesus is safe for the world. And they could take Jesus and they can leave Jesus and they can put him back in a box at the end of the, the month and they can stick him up in the attic and then they can go on with their lives. Baby Jesus doesn't demand very much. You know, as I think about that, I also think about the fact that many times we as Christians, as those who believe the inerrant, infallible word of God, we're in danger of something. We're in danger of forgetting, but not forgetting. 
Forgetting and not forgetting is something that we often do. Um, I was thinking about this the other day as uh, we were getting ready to eat some dinner. You know, when you get older, many of you know this, there are things that you used to be able to eat when you were younger, but you cannot eat anymore when you're older. You have to pick things out. Um, the, the bell peppers on the pizza doesn't agree with you anymore. You don't dare eat that chili dog or it's going to come back and haunt you in the middle of the night. You used to eat those spicy things, but not so much anymore. And uh, sometimes we remember that, but we forget. We forget the effects. Maybe you're lactose intolerant, but that ice cream just looks so, so inviting. And so you say to yourself, maybe this time it'll be okay. Maybe it won't bother me the way it has in the past. And lo and behold, there in the middle of the night, your prayer life increases, doesn't it? Oh, Jesus, I'm so sorry I ate that chili cheese dog. I knew, oh God, if you just get me through this night, I'll never touch it again. You see, we remember, but we don't remember the way we should remember. We, we forget and remember at the same time. Well, we can do that with the holiness of God as well. That we can know who God is. We know that Jesus isn't just the baby in the manger, but sometimes we, we forget what we know, that He's more than that. And so this morning, even as we prepare our minds and our hearts for worshiping our Savior in this Christmas season, as we gather together as a church, as the people of God, I want us to be reminded of who this God is that we worship. And so we're going to read Isaiah chapter 6. I just want to look at the first seven verses this morning in our limited time. And if you would follow along in your own copy of the Word of God, the inerrant, infallible Word of the Sovereign God says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him, stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is the word of the living God. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we, we sing praises to You. 
We give our offerings to You. We come together on the Lord's Day to worship You, but yet remembering we, we are sometimes guilty of forgetting who You are. Sometimes our apathy comes from this forgetfulness. Sometimes our hearts grow lukewarm and even cold. Sometimes, Lord God, our commitments is signified that we have forgotten who you really are. And so we ask you this morning that you would inflame our hearts with this reminder of who you are, that we might be jolted out of any apathy that we might be guilty of, that we might remember that you are the sovereign king, the creator of the universe, the great and mighty judge who sits upon the throne, and that one day you will return and that You are the God that we worship, and nothing less. May we put away the false ideas, the idols of our hearts, and may we lift You up as You deserve. For You truly are great and greatly to be praised. And it is in Your name that we ask these things. Amen. We can acknowledge that God is holy. We can sing about His holiness. We can read about it in our Bibles. But still over time, we need to be reminded in a very real and a very graphic way so that we can be jolted out of our lethargy at times. What do I mean when I say that God is holy? Well, I mean two things, really. I mean, first, the moral purity of God. That God is absolutely free from any stain of sin or error. And most of us think of that when we think of the holiness of God. God is holy. He is perfect. He is righteous. He has no sin. But I also mean a second thing. I mean that God is otherworldly. He is not like us. He is absolutely and totally different from any of His creatures. We might share in some of His characteristics. He's given them to us. He's created us in His image. But even in those things, He is supreme. And we're only a shadow of His majesty. The problem is that we live in a fallen world. We're fallen people. And we live in an age when you need to come out of the city, come out of creation, go out into the mountains, go and see the great rivers and the incredible beauty of this world to see the magnificence of God's creation in the heavens because the glow of the city overpowers them and we forget the greatness of our God. You see, we can go out in the beautiful night sky, especially in the winter, we can see those stars and they look so far and they look so small, but do not forget, they aren't small are they they only look small from where we are and neither is god he is not small we just forget we forget how great we forget how holy we forget how different god is from us we need a reminder of god's holiness we almost need to be shocked into remembering and coming face to face with this perfect, otherworldly creator of the universe. 
You see, we don't, we don't come to this place so that we might be filled with warm fuzzies and walk out of here going, boy, that was, that was beautiful music. And that's, that's great, but you can do that at a concert. We come into this place to meet with our majestic God so that He might speak to us and we, we might walk out of here not saying what a great sermon, not what great music, or oh, what incredible fellowship, but that we might walk out of this place and say, what a great God. That is what we have gathered for. So in the time we have this morning, I'd like to share with you Five reminders that our God is holy, 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 and that He is worthy of all our reverence and praise and adoration. Here's the first reminder. We, we dare not ever forget the difference between Creator and creature. Don't forget the difference between Creator and creature. Look at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died. Now, I don't even need to go further than that because that is a reminder that the prophet Isaiah, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has put in to say, wait a minute, do not forget who you are. It really is a, a time indicator in Isaiah's vision. It occurs in that year, in the particular year that King Uzziah died. But... This reference to Uzziah's death is more than just a chronological marker. It points to a man who forgot who he was. And it was fatal. If you were to take the time, you might want to write this down and, and go back and read it sometime today. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, we find that there is this great king. He is a righteous king for the most part. He loves his God and he serves him and he serves him well and he serves him wisely. There are many kings in the history of Israel and Judah that are not this way, but not Uzziah. He is a good king. He is a godly king. But in 2 Chronicles 26, in verse 16, there is this verse. It says, But when he, when Uzziah was strong... He grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Israel had kings. It had prophets. It had priests. But it did not have kings that were priests. And it did not have kings that were prophets. It did not have prophets that were priests. They were all in their, their order. God had established it this way. We have only one great king and priest and prophet, and that's Jesus. And Uzziah did not know his bounds. And because he became proud of heart, he walked into the temple and he began to offer up incense to God, which is the purview of the priest alone. So the priests lined up, swords in hand, bold men of God, and said, Uzziah, this is not allowable. They withstood him. It says Uzziah became angry. And when he became angry, God struck him with leprosy. Now not only was he unable to be in there because he was not a priest, but now he was unclean. And when Uzziah realized that God had struck him in judgment with leprosy, it shocked him. 
he remembered once again that he was only a man. And he rushed out, never to recover from his leprosy, never to live within the holy city in the way that a king would live, but to be pushed to the fringe of society as rejected by God and rejected by men, and then he would die. In the year that that happened, God appears to Isaiah. So when we get this vision of the exalted king of the heavens, we are at the outset of this chapter reminded that there was this death of an earthly king. We lost one of our past presidents, didn't we? We just lost George Herbert Walker Bush. He wasn't in office, though. In our government, we don't have kings who last their whole lives. But if you could imagine that here is a long, long, long lasting king. Uzziah was a good king, a faithful king, a popular king, and he was a king that lasted for decades. And now all of a sudden, the nation has been rocked to its core because the king has died. But Isaiah wants us to see at the very outset, yes, but the king is on his throne. Human rulers pass away. Just like the grass withers and the flower fades. But the king remains on his throne. He is not like us. Presidents get elected. Kings get crowned. This king, the king of kings, was never crowned. He will never cease to live. He does as he he wills. His decrees are never delayed. His decrees are never blocked. Like Uzziah, we can forget that. We begin to whittle away at the God of the Bible. We begin to paint his image into one that resembles us a lot. We soften his face until we're comfortable with him. There are many people that maybe you've spoken to, maybe you've even had this thought cross your mind, that's not what my God is like. And that's probably true. Your God may not be like that. But the God of the Bible, the God of the universe, the God that exists is exactly as he's described in Scripture. And no less. A.W. Tozer wrote in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, these words. Left to ourselves, we tend to immediately reduce God to manageable terms. We want to get him where we can use him, or at least know where he is when we need him. We want a God we can in some measure control. We need the feeling of security that comes in knowing what God is like. And what he is like is, of course, a composite of all the religious pictures we've seen, all the best people we've known or heard about, and all the sublime ideas we have entertained. So we have made an idol instead of a God. In other words, we want to carry God in our pocket and in our purse. We want to manage God. 
Probably about 10 years ago, it was a popular thing in California where I'm from, and maybe it made it all the way out here. I hope not. I'm so sorry for all the garbage that we spread from California to the rest of the world. I just want to apologize on behalf of the state that I was born and raised in. We have some crazy liberals. When you guys say that the left coast is the land of fruits and nuts, you are not far from the truth. There are good people there. God has some people there. It will not slide off into the ocean, at least while most of them stay there, the good people of God. But you, you know, in California for a while there, even amongst Christians, there was craziness. There still is. And I remember two things. One was it started getting really popular that people would wear a t-shirt that said it had a picture of Jesus. It was a cartoon of Jesus. And it said, Jesus is my homeboy. And then at a church not very far from the church that I was pastoring at, there was a church that on the front, they had a huge banner. It was a long banner, and it had a cartoon picture of Jesus, and it said, what's up? Jesus is saying, what's up? It was right across the street from Carson High School, a local high school, and I figured it was meant to attract the students. And I thought it was interesting that on both occasions, it's meant to attract the youth, it's meant to caricature Jesus it's meant to bring him into the culture instead of causing the world to see that that's not our God Jesus is not your homeboy he is a great and mighty king and we can forget that he is not like us even as John who leaned upon his bosom at the Last Supper, looked upon this same risen Lord in the book of Revelations. He fell like a dead man before him. This is not another one of us. And we can forget that. Don't ever forget the distinction between creature and creator. Notice secondly, notice secondly, in verse 1 it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The second thing we need to remember is don't ever forget that God is the great king and judge. He is the great king and judge. In this majestic vision, Isaiah is overwhelmed with a throne room scenario. Most likely, he's seeing the temple. But... He's seeing the temple as it's never been seen before by any Jew, including the high priest. Those of you that are familiar with the Bible's description of what the temple would be like, it would be a long room, the temple proper itself, not the whole grounds, but the temple would have the holy place, and in that holy place there would have been specific holy furniture, we could call it. There would have been an altar and a table that would have had some bread on it. There would have been a menorah, which would have been a light. There would have been certain things there, a, a a little miniature of the altar outside with, where they sacrificed the animals. This one would have been for incense. And then there was this great heavy curtain. And on the other side of that great heavy curtain would have been a box, the Ark of the Covenant. It would have held the tablets from Moses and other things in it with gigantic angels whose wings were bent over as they symbolically bowed before this great king. There was nothing else in there. 
This was meant to show a throne room. This was meant to be symbolic of a throne. But God does not inhabit little buildings on earth. But in this scene that Isaiah sees, there is a throne in the place where he would have expected the Ark of the Covenant. And there is God in his vision sitting upon this throne. And it's majestic and holy. And he's reminded that this is the king. Now what's interesting is that there are not statues of angels. There are angels filling the sky around the throne. Notice that it describes this throne room. Now not only is the king high and lifted up, but it says the train of his robe filled the temple. A, tro- a train like a, a wedding where the bride has this long train that goes behind her. And some of you saw the royal weddings and those trains were longer to show higher status, to show that this was a future royal. Long trains with children carrying them. Here is the king and his robe fills the whole temple. To show how majestic he is. The throne is the place for the king. It's a place for the king to meet his subjects. And it is a place for him to make declarations and judgments. Then surrounding the throne, of course, look at what it says. Above him, the Lord seated upon the throne. Above him stood the seraphim, the burning ones. That's what their Hebrew name means. Each of these angels has six wings. And we're told what they do with them. Only two of them are used to fly. The other sets are used to cover their face and to cover their feet. And they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. How amazing it is. That in Revelation, written hundreds and hundreds of years later, that you read that the angels in Revelation are still calling out, Holy, holy, holy. Back and forth in antiphonal praise. And brothers and sisters, the angels today in heaven, before the throne of God, are still crying out, Holy, holy, holy. How does a king deserve to be treated? How does the king of kings deserve to be revered and feared? Does that match up with the way that we live before the Lord? Keep your place here and go with me to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 6. If you could find your way to Matthew and back up a little bit. Malachi chapter 6, because the Lord speaks about the way he should be revered and the way that the religious people of the Old Testament were treating him. Excuse me, Malachi chapter (laughs) 4. Even worse, chapter (laughs) 1. This reminds me that I'm a creature. Don't act like you don't make mistakes too. You know you do. 
I'm all, I'm all right being human. Malachi chapter 1. Look at verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. This is God speaking. A son honors his father. That's, that's the natural course of things in this culture. A servant honors his master. And then Jesus, or God the Father relates these things. He says, if then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests. Does that shock you? He's not speaking to, to common people. He's not speaking to unbelievers, infidels, Gentiles. He's speaking to priests. Let's read on. He says, O priests who despise my name. But, but you, priests, God is saying, you priests say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? You know what God is saying. I was thinking about, I'm, again, I'm human, so I think about ungodly things at times. Just mere things like food. I, I love different kinds of foods, and one thing I like is fried chicken. I don't know if you can be a preacher and not like fried chicken. I don't think that's allowable. I think that's an ordination question. Do you like fried chicken? I love fried chicken. He's good. Pass it. Here's the thing. Can you imagine taking a drumstick, God's handle for chicken? Take a drumstick, and you took a bite for how much time you have. The drumstick represents the 24 hours that God has given you. And you took that drumstick and you started to take bites off in accordance to how much you spend on time. We would probably take a pretty good-sized bite out for several things, like sleep. I mean, God requires us to sleep. We have to sleep. We're only human. We'll sleep. So you take a big bite off for sleep. And then we have to work. Most of us have to work. We have to pay the bills. We have to keep the lights on. And so take a, a couple bites out for, for work. And of course, we need some downtime. We need some recreation. I mean, God doesn't expect us to never watch TV, right? Not, never go play with the kids, never go to the gym. So let me take a little bite out of that. How about keeping up with friends? And, you know, we don't do that face-to-face -to -face too much anymore. So Facebook should count. God would understand, right? Facebook is all right. So let me take a, most of us would, should probably take a big bite out with Facebook, but maybe we'll just go graciously and take a little bite out with Facebook and social media. And then when you're done taking all the bites out of all the things that consume your time and your energy and your thought life, out of that chicken, I think that there would be many Christians, if we were just being honest with ourselves, who would take that piece of fried chicken that's almost been completely eaten up. And there's, you know, you probably say, well, there's some meat on there. Sure. There's some meat on there. And I think we would take what's left and we'd say, that's for God. Let 
We give God the scraps sometimes. Let's just be honest. You know what, pastors? I, I was a pastor for 17 years before I moved to Michigan in September. You know what sometimes happens? Pastors know this. We'll get this question oftentimes. The question will be like this. Well, pastor, should I give before or after taxes? Well, pastor, what does God think if I can't pay my bills? Should I still give to him? Well, pastor, God understands, right? When I don't do this or I don't do that. God understands, right? Well, you read Malachi with me. I think we need to ask a different question. Where are our priorities? And do we reverence and fear the great king and judge? Because when we forget who God is, we treat him as second, maybe third down the line to other things. There may be some people who didn't make it to church today for very legitimate reasons. But there are some people who aren't at church today, and you know why? Because God came down the line of importance. Ah, I can worship out at the mall. I'll be thankful when I get that good deal I'm, in, I'm hunting for. Don't forget who he is. Here's a third one. Here's a third one. It's in verse 2. Go back to Isaiah if you can. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2. Above him, above the throne of the great king, stood the seraphim. Each has those six wings. With two they covered their face. With two they covered their feet. With two they flew. And they cry out to one another, holy, holy, holy. Here's a third thing you need to see this morning is that we're never to forget the blinding holiness of God's presence. Never forget the blinding holiness of God's presence. I find it especially interesting that the seraphim are described in this great detail. The six wings that they have have these functions. Two are used for flying. But the other two sets are very important to us. Two are said to be used for covering their feet. It's possibly because the feet are the lowliest part of our bodies. You remember Jesus' disciples arguing about who was the greatest, but none of them would wash each other's feet? Why? Because they're in the dirt. Now, angels that fly don't have that, but they are the lowliest part of the body. Maybe it's to keep them from contamination. Maybe it's to keep them from defilements. I don't know. We don't have a lot on that. But it's the other set that's really interesting. Because not only are two used to fly and two to cover their feet, two wings are used to cover their eyes. Now, I used to think that we, if we were to stand before a holy God, we could not exist because we are morally impure. We are sinners. And if sinners stand before God, we would be obliterated. And that's absolutely true. But notice this. These are morally pure, perfect angels. And as they fly in the presence of this holy God, they dare not look at Him either. Because they have not forgotten that they are creatures and He is the Creator. And they are in front of this pure, holy God that they cannot bear to look at Him. You'll remember in Exodus 33 when Moses asked the Lord to show Him His glory. The Lord refused. In Exodus 33.20, He said, You cannot see My face, for man shall not see Me and live. 
And again, when the Apostle John, one of, not just one of the twelve, but one of the inner three, he was so comfortable with Jesus. He was even related by blood to Jesus. He leaned back on him at that Last Supper and asked, Am I, am I the betrayer? But in Revelation 1.17, he fa- falls as a dead man before this blindingly holy God. And Isaiah, he's terrified. Notice what he says. He cries out, woe is me. Now, we don't use woe is me anymore, do we? I have never heard anybody say woe is me out loud. Not in this society. In the Hebrew, the word is oi. Oi. Which makes more sense because when you're shocked by something, you don't put out full sentences. Woe is me. The, today's English version paraphrases it this way. There is no hope for me. The Living Bible says, my doom is sealed. The New Century Version says, oh no, I will be destroyed. Still, nobody says those things. I mean, if a truck is going to hit you, you don't go, woe is me. Oh no, I will be destroyed. I think oi is much better. Oi, boom. That's it. That's all you'd hear. That's what Isaiah says. With all seriousness, he stands before this glorious king. The angels dare not even look at him. And he says, I'm undone. I'm finished. I'm through. My life is about to end. It's the split second that you have to think as that nuclear blast is about to incinerate you. I am done. And you think, well, is it really that way? Is this Jesus speaking mild? I want you to think about this. Not that long ago, we had these special eclipses, and we had to still tell people, don't look at the sun. It always shocks me, because my mama told me that when I was really small. Don't look at the sun. Because kids will do that. But we have adults doing things, all kinds of things today. I don't understand. But how, how come you can't? The sun is a created thing. Can you imagine this? You cannot look at our sun. Our sun is not an extra bright star. It's not a superstar. It's just an average, middle of the road, somewhat normal, milk toast, boring sun. Amongst all suns, astronomers tell us it's just a regular sun. But if you, a creature, look at that created thing, the sun, for just a little bit of time, you will be absolutely blinded. Now, if you, a creature, if me, a creature, cannot look at this created thing without going blind, how in the world do we think we can look at the creator of that sun and all the suns and all the stars and all the universe that's ever been created? He is so majestic. Don't forget that. But we have to hasten on. Never forget this as well. Fourth, never forget the piercing eyes of God. In those verses 3, 4, and 5, the angels call out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house is filled with smoke. And He cries out, Woe is me. Why? Because I'm lost. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah recognizes that God sees 
As he stands there, God's eyes pierce his very soul. The holiness of God is all-pervasive. There is no way to escape it. It doesn't just hang out around God, leave everything else alone. Maybe you've heard this here. I've heard it many times. You lied. And in church. Yeah, if you just go step out in the parking lot, it's all right. Right? No. You said that to the pastor? Yeah, you could say it to other people. It's still sin. It's not the holiness of God can't get out of a building. It's not that the holiness of God is only in heaven. It's the holiness of God is everywhere. He is that holy. And it obviously deeply affected the throne room because the angels cry out in this praise back and forth. The walls and the floor and the ceiling and the supporting beams, they all shake. The room is filled with smoke. And Isaiah, the lone human being in this room, is decimated as his whole soul is examined by the holy eyes of God. And in the presence of God, he becomes instantly aware of the great impurity of his heart. Jeremiah 17.10 tells us, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give Every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. See, there are people out in this world, maybe some of you, that think, oh, God doesn't know. He sees the deepest part of your heart that maybe even you fooled yourself into ignoring and thinking nobody else knows of. He knows it. And Isaiah, a man of God, a prophet of God, stands before God and he says, I'm not innocent. I'm undone. I'm finished. He's trembling. He's trembling for three reasons. He's trembling for his own sinful soul. But he's also trembling for his people's sinfulness as well. I live among a people of unclean lips. And he's trembling because he is a mere creature standing before holy God. It's been said that if we could just grasp this all-knowing and everywhere presence of God in a very real way as Isaiah experienced it, we would struggle with high-handed sin. If you just knew God is with you right now, on that date... In that movie theater, on your computer, in that conversation, you would have a hard time if you knew God was there. You would have a hard time doing what you know God despises. But we forget. We go back to Jesus in a manger. Oh, baby Jesus wouldn't mind. This is our God. I mean, if you really felt God's eyes upon you, like Isaiah does here, could you listen to a filthy joke? Could you lust after those things on the internet? Could you, if you shook in the presence of our all-seeing God, go to the movies and, and watch actors speak filthiness or engage in adultery? But we do. And I'm here to tell you that He does see But we've forgotten who God is. We've forgotten that He is holy and that He demands holiness. We've forgotten about the sinfulness of sin. But we have an opportunity here to renew our vision of God. To see Him as He is. 
not how we want him to be. That brings us to the last reminder in those last two verses. It says in verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken from the, with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with that burning coal. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Number five, never forget the power of the purging effect of his holiness. Never forget the power of that purging effect of God's holiness. I'd be failing as a preacher of the gospel to take you beyond sinners in the hands of an angry God. Our all-seeing, all-knowing God is also merciful and gracious. And as soon as Isaiah cries out with the recognition of his sin, of a brokenness over his sins and the sins of his people, he is immediately brought relief by our God. A seraph, a burning one, burning with the holiness of God. He comes and he brings a purifying coal to purge the sinful lips of Isaiah. Isaiah's guilt was removed and his sin was atoned for instantly. How could this man, how could this sinful man be forgiven in the presence of this holy God? How is it possible? The coal from the altar where the sacrifice had been consumed brought the cure for Isaiah's soul cancer. The high Lord of glory could have justly destroyed him and banished him from his presence. But we see nothing here but grace. The sovereign Lord that Isaiah saw, the one who sat upon the throne, long after Isaiah would come. He would put on flesh. He would become a man. So that by His sacrifice, He would atone for the sins of the world. Jesus would become the sacrifice that would not only purge Isaiah's sins, but our sins as well. Sinner, has met the holy God of heaven. Heaven and earth have intersected. And it was all of grace. These are the reminders, the five that we have this morning from this passage. Don't forget the difference between creator and creature. And don't forget that God is the great king and judge. That there is a blinding holiness of his presence. And that he has piercing eyes that go to and fro the earth and he sees everything. But especially never forget the purging effect of his holiness. That this great God and King can and will forgive you of every sin you've ever committed if you will cast your sins upon him. If you will call out to him and say, Lord Jesus, forgive me, a sinner. If you will call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Let's pray. Our great God and King, we thank you for you are holy, holy, holy. You are worthy to be praised. You are not just the great King, but you are our high priest You have sacrificed and come 
so that we might have forgiveness of sins. We pray, Lord God, that these five reminders would continue to work through our hearts. That, Lord God, we would be given over completely to you. And that as we do so, Lord God, we might see the fruit of our saving grace. Thank you for your word. May it have its mighty effect in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.